0: It is a well-known fact that several faiths, um, you know, have coexisted peacefully in Jammu and Kashmir for centuries. Now, of course, as we get into the 80s and the 90s, that idea is is sort of challenged by the secessionist movement, which is not merely a secessionist movement, but is really a, a, a movement to... Um, to exclude, you know, every community except for the Muslims. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Samir Khalra speaks with award-winning author Yujijit Badacharji about the rise of Jaishi Muhammad founder Masood Azhar and the role of Pakistan-sponsored terrorism in the Kashmir conflict.
1: So, we're joined today by Yudhajeet Bhattacharji. Yudhajeet is a contributing writer at National Geographic and a contributor to The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine. He's also the author of the New York Times best selling nonfiction thriller, The Spy Who Couldn't Spell. I'm really, really pleased to have him here with me today to talk about Kashmir, The Terrorist Who Got Away, and the future of India Pakistan relations. Welcome, Yudhajeet.
0: Thank you so much, Samir. Happy to be here. Great. So Yudhajit, I really wanted to start with your most recent article in The New York Times
1: magazine, The Terrorists Who Got Away, which was a really fascinating and in-depth piece on Masood Azar, who, of course, is the notorious leader of Jish and Muhammad one of the most prominent Pakistan-based terrorist groups operating Kashmir, also an organization that has been designated as a terrorist organization by the State Department, the United Nations, and uh, many other entities around the world. Um, if you could maybe just, you know, before getting into a little bit about your deep dive into Uzer and his background, maybe just give us a little context. I know you kind of went um, into Uh, the history of India-Pakistan relations and really centered around the conflict of Kashmir. And something that you said really struck me where you said that at its core, the Kashmir conflict is a conflict over identity. Uh, Can you maybe expand on that a little bit and what that means for each uh, country, Pakistan and India, and how it's influenced their actions over the years?
0: Sure. Absolutely. Uh, well, so maybe it would be helpful if I started by telling you um, what fascinated me about the story and how I how I, you know, was driven to to write it. And then I'll come to the, the specific question that you just asked. Uh, so back in 1999, I left India and came to the United States uh, to pursue Graduate studies. And in December of 99, I was visiting my brother in Canada uh, when, like you know, like millions of Indians, I got news of the hijacking of an Indian Airlines plane uh, that was flying from Kathmandu to Delhi. Uh, the plane was uh, hijacked by five men who were Pakistanis, uh, as was later confirmed uh, through investigations. And these five men, they hijacked the plane and they, they ordered the pilot to ultimately fly to Kandahar in Afghanistan, which at the time was under the Taliban regime. And after six days of negotiation, uh, the Indian government was forced to release uh, three terrorists. The principal terrorist being Masood Azhar. Uh, so, I, I was sort of shocked that this had happened. Um, just like, like you know, like I said, uh, all of India was just traumatized by this, by this event. Uh, and many years later, uh, I sort of returned to the story and started wondering about what had happened to those five hijackers. Uh, and of course, by that, by then, Masud Azar had started his uh, his terrorist organization, the Jaishi Muhammad and, and the Jaish had carried out a number of terrorist attacks against India. Uh, so it was only around 2010 that I, I really started to grasp the significance of what had happened. And I was uh, bewildered that the international community had not put sufficient pressure on Pakistan uh, right after the hijacking, to uh, to basically bring Masood Azhar. And these five hijackers to justice. So that's kind of that was my my personal entry into the story. Um, but to go back to your question, you know, it was in the course of reporting this piece that I really understood uh, the history of, of India and Pakistan's conflict over Kashmir. And you pointed to that that sentence in the article about this conflict being at its core a clash. Of identity, um, and I, I sort of realized this um, when I looked into uh, you know the the, uh, the 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 history of Kashmir and and how Kashmir became a part of India in 1948 49 um you know within within a few months of uh the subcontinent becoming independent from from colonial rule uh and i i i i realized that india for india the idea of kashmir was kind of central uh you know to the idea of india uh, let me unpack that uh, kashmir uh, you know has has always had a pluralistic faith tradition. It, it is, you know, at one point, it was ruled by uh, the Sikhs. Um, at, at, at one point, um, at the time of independence, uh, the ruler of Kashmir, of Jammu and Kashmir, was Hari Singh, uh, who was a Hindu king. Uh, and... It is it is a well-known fact that several faiths, um, you know, have coexisted peacefully in Jammu and Kashmir for centuries. Now, of course, um, as we get into the 80s and the 90s, um, that idea is is sort of challenged by the secessionist movement, which is not merely a secessionist movement but is really a, a movement to um, to exclude you know every community except for the muslims uh, so it, now let's go back again to nineteen forty seven you know Pakistan uh, declared itself as a state that was going to abide by Islam, you know, it was it was a it was uh, going to be an Islamic state, and India had declared that it was going to be a secular state where uh, religion was going to not be a part of its governance structure. And so, for Pakistan, it just felt like unless they could bring Kashmir into their fold, they could not sort of they could not demonstrate this principle of you know we are a muslim country therefore all the muslims wherever in india there is a muslim majority that part of india belongs in pakistan that was the idea that drove them whereas the idea that drove india was that you know we are an ancient civilization of which Kashmir has always been an integral part, and the religious composition of Kashmir today should not matter to our uh, our, our notion of Kashmir being a part of India. That's a long-winded answer, I realize, but uh, but really, I was I was just trying to unpack it.
1: Sure. No, absolutely. And I think you know you raise a great point in terms of um, you know this idea of any Muslim needing to belong in Pakistan in order to give really a reason for the Pakistani state to exist. I think that idea, which you alluded to in your article as well, was further undermined in 1971, when there was uh, a movement for independence and eventually independence, East Pakistanis or ethnic uh, East Bengalis. happened. And with that context, I mean, I think Kashmir has become even more important than in the 80s. And, 90s. and how do you see that playing out going forward? Because if it is truly an issue of identity, and for the Pakistani state in particular, would they ever give up that claim on Kashmir? Or would they ever give up? How would, how would that even impact their calculus? I mean, I, from my understanding, I would believe, I would think that if they let go of Kashmir, this idea that they need to wrest Kashmir, the Indian state of Jammu Kashmir back into Pakistan, then that was the whole reason for the Pakistani state to exist because it's undermined that identity issue. So how can they even, you know, when it's controlled by military intelligence establishment, how can they ever let go of that idea that they need to have Kashmir to be complete?
0: Well, you know, I've thought about this a little bit, um, you know, when i was writing the piece reporting the piece and also since the piece came out and and i've you know been talking to people about it the only hope that i see of pakistan ever giving up this idea is to kind of reconcile um with uh you know with the idea of a nation state at least secular on some level in the 21st century they they have to sort of adapt to the idea that nation states ultimately no matter how influential religion might be in society that nation states have to ultimately be governed by a set of laws that everyone agrees on regardless of uh, of religious backing so uh, I I believe that um that Pakistan at least at the moment is not about to give up its desire to wrest Kashmir from India uh I think um the abrogation of article 370 and and sort of India's consolidation um of You know, uh, of of uh, its its let's say its 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 territorial integrity with Kashmir, um, I I think is only going to cause the Pakistani military intelligence uh, establishment to to make more moves to try and and uh, you know pick up this fight again to resume uh, at some point in the future, but. I do think that there's a younger generation of Pakistanis who might might be willing to look beyond and and say, look, you you know, we see young people in India progressing at a much faster rate than us. Uh, We see them getting into the global mainstream at a rate that we are finding difficult because of this very idea that we need to first assert our identity. I mean, Pakistan still, you know, just by definition, by because of this desire to rest Kashmir, uh, it, it seems very much to be a, a nation still in the making. I mean, some might argue that India also is a nation still in the making, but more fundamentally, I think Pakistan, you know, seems to be a nation in the making where they're still still trying to convince themselves that their founding idea of nationhood is a sound one. And, you know, you
1: talked a lot about, um, along these lines, the use of strategic assets by Pakistan because there was a realization um, after 1971 in particular, that they couldn't win a conventional war with india and so they used uh, strategic assets meaning terrorist groups uh, and i think this has been confirmed by you know pakistan i think were, their own admission as well as many security intelligence uh, establishments around the world have confirmed that they do support provide shelter support training etc to these groups and you know with their use of these groups um, have they created a situation where it's almost now difficult to back away from that because they're creating a monster that now is, you know, they can say that they control it, they can try to control it, but they also, these groups also operate uh, to some degree uh, according to their own agendas. And so now you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So, how does that play out in terms of Pakistan's role in supporting these groups and how these groups operate in Kashmir um, and that relationship?
0: Uh, you're right. Uh, I think, I think uh, you know, Pakistan, the Pakistani government or sections of the Pakistani government have, when pushed to the wall, they have often claimed they used to support terrorist groups in the past uh, and no longer do so. Um, and of course, you know, it doesn't matter when you ask them. You ask them in 2004 well, they used to and don't do it anymore. Uh, and you ask them in 2008, well, they used to and they don't anymore. And and so that seems to be kind of the refrain from the Pakistani establishment. And I think to some extent, it does reflect, uh, you know, they're, they're not being completely dishonest when they say that they used to and don't anymore. What they really are trying to say is that we would, you know, Some of us would like to stop supporting these terrorist groups and disband them entirely, but we don't know how. And, well, of course, because these terrorist groups, they are embedded in society. You know, they... Uh, Let's just talk about the Jaisi Muhammad, about which I I know a little bit because I I did research for the story. The Jaisi Muhammad is headquartered in Bahawalpur, and they have recruits from all over the Punjab province uh, and elsewhere in Pakistan, but they have a lot of support in Bahawalpur in the city of Bahawalpur and in the outskirts of Bahawalpur, They raise their, they raise funds, you know, through some charity institutions, um, you know, they, uh, the, the Maulana Masudazar, uh, who goes by, you know, Maulana, even though uh, many argue that that name does not apply to him since he's he's really a, a terrorist. Uh, but Masudazar goes around, uh, making sermons, or at least used to, it's unclear where he is at the moment, but he would make sermons at mosques all over this region. The local population would flock to these mosques to to listen to him speak. So Masudazar became Masudazar because he was backed by the ISI and he was propped up by the military but he created his own circle of influence in pakistani society you know you got you, you can't just all of a sudden turn off that spigot because you you can't you can't acknowledge to the pakistani people that that all of this propaganda was propaganda you know that that there was no real basis uh for many of these uh, these claims and messages that uh, Masud Azar has, uh, Masud Azar and the entire organization Jais, uh has been delivering to the people for so long. So they've got some buy-in from locals, uh, and and so even if somebody. From the ISI, were to go to Masudazar tomorrow and say, "Okay, that's enough. We're not providing you with any more logistical support, and from here on out, you're on your own. You're, you're not going to get anything from us. And in fact, we would strongly urge you to stop sermonizing and stop kind of, you know, propagating the messages that you've been you've been doing for the last twenty years." Masudazar isn't going to necessarily say, "All right." Yes, sir. That's what I'll do, because remember, you know, (laughs) there's these are uh, they're not uniformed soldiers. You know, they're they're not under the command and control of the military in the way that uh, that a battalion would be under the command of generals and. Pakistan deliberately chose the strategy so that it would always have plausible deniability well the flip side of of having that plausible deniability is that you also have you know real loss of control you know so i think that you know i i, I think that i think there are people in the pakistani establishment you know, who have tried, in fact, I think under under Musharraf, back in 2003, 2004, there was a serious attempt uh, to, to try and, and, uh, you know, uh, cut the Jaish off at the knees, but that did not work. And in fact, there were elements within the ISI that continued to support the Jaish, and uh, and the Jaish ended up, um, you know, carrying out, it's an, an assassination attempt on on Pervez Musharraf, which uh, which fortunately for him failed. They continued to exist even after an assassination attempt on the president. I think that should tell you something about the kind of influence that they enjoy in the population as well as. The support that they have from, you know, from various rungs of the ISI, even if the leadership, um, you know, decides to to control them. And it seems, in many ways, that uh, Masood
1: Azhar and Jason Muhammad have almost surpassed many other uh, terrorist groups in Kashmir to kind of become the most prominent faces of the terrorist movement there. And I think you draw, I, I think what I found very interesting was that you drew a parallel between the view of Azhar by the Indian security establishment in the same way that the US had viewed Osama bin Laden as really enemy number one. And I think that's kind of signifying that he really even surpassed who was maybe the old face of terrorism. Uh, Hafiz Saeed from Lashkar-e-Taiba, uh, traditionally was viewed as the main, um, you know, face of terrorism in Kashmir. Can you talk a little bit more about Azar and how he kind of, and, and Jaysh, and how they came to take this role and how the Indian security establishment ended up viewing them really as enemy number one?
0: Masood Azar's story sort of begins, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, when, when he became part of the Hezbollah Mujahideen. Actually, he he became part of the Harkatul Mujahideen, I'm, I'm sorry. And, uh, and he was sent to Afghanistan uh, to a training camp, because that's where the Mujahids were fighting at the time. Uh, as you know, through the 80s, um and and actually through 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 the through the late 70s and and into the 80s pakistan became sort of this this center uh or this hub for uh jihadi groups that were um that were cultivated by the united states um to to fight um the russians the 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 USSR um, in Afghanistan. So when the the Soviet-Afghan conflict ended, these groups, they didn't just disband and go away. And the Pakistani ISI, which had been the coordinator uh, and the organizer of these groups through the Soviet-Afghan conflict, they decided to leverage them and send them to Kashmir and and try and sort of deploy these forces if you will to uh their cause of separating Jammu and Kashmir from India and this is when masood azhar was entering the fray right when you know right around the time when these groups were being pressed into Kashmir and so around 1992 93 he you know he 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 had already made a couple of visits um uh, he he had, he had made several visits uh, all, all over the world um and he had he had given all these sermons at mosques in the UK in a number of countries in East Africa and so he had become influential as a fundraiser and a speaker within that movement it was in 1990 four, that he came to Kashmir and uh, he was planning to, you know, recruit people and, and inspire people into carrying out attacks against the Indian security establishment. But he still wasn't that known of a face at the time. And this is when he got arrested and he ended up in Indian prison starting 1994. And it was in 1999 that his brother-in-law, along with four other men, hijacked the Indian Airlines plane um, that I started the story with. And they ended up managing to secure Masoud Azhar's release. Now, when he got released and came back to Pakistan, he really kind of attained this mythic status because people kind of learned his backstory that he had been in Indian prison for so long. So he became a hero to a section of the Pakistani population, especially the, the conservative uh, Pakistani population, which uh, is desirous of of seeing Kashmir become a part of Pakistan. That's when he launched the group Jaishya Muhammad. And The Jaisi Muhammad immediately struck. It carried out sort of a, a, you know, a a small suicide attack, uh, you know, I think within a few months of being being formed. Uh, And then soon after, it carried out what was really a, a major attack on India's parliament in which I think six or seven people were killed. And so even though the number of people killed, um, you know, by, by Pakistan's terrorism standards wasn't huge, it it, it was, you know, it, it, they had managed to strike on India's parliament. I mean, it, it it really shook the country. It shook the world. And it placed Jaisen Mohammed uh, right on the map as uh, as a big player in terrorism, things sort of just took off from there, and the jihadi Muhammad was able to raise more money, uh, recruit more people, and you know, and it continued to carry out attacks uh, until 2008, when. When the Mumbai attacks took place, which were orchestrated not by the judge, but by lashkar e I mean, these groups, you know, were in some some sense they were also competing with each other because in 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 Pakistan, uh, ter- terrorist groups, um, you know, they they have they probably have different line items in the in the Pakistani military budget, you know, <laughs> which and they they probably compete with one another. But anyway, um, uh, you know, so so the the lashkar sort of came back into prominence after the Mumbai terrorist attacks. And, and so for some years, we didn't hear much about the Jaish, but starting in about 2014, the Jaish, well, people thought, well, maybe the Jaish has gone away, but of course that wasn't true. Uh, in fact, the Jaish was building you know, a new training center Uh, in, in Bahawalpur in 2009, 2010, I I sort of talk about that, that in the story, you know, they were probably, you know, building back up, um, and, and by 2014, they were ready to strike again. And then of course, in 2016, January, um, they attacked the Indian Air Force base in Patankot, which... You know, proved to be a, a, a really deadly attack um, in which I think six or six or seven Indian security personnel at the airbase were killed, along with the four terrorists um, uh, from the Jaish who um, you know who who were able to breach into into the base, and then of course fast forward to. Uh, February of two thousand nineteen uh, when um, this jeshi moment operative uh, who was actually a Kashmiri boy who had gone over to Pakistan uh, to join the Jaysh, uh he was able to carry out a suicide you know car bombing that led to the death of more than forty indian security personnel from the crpf in kashmir so it was clear at that point that the Jaish was was very very active and you know would continue to inflict more casualties on indian security forces and the, the local kashmir population actually made a very interesting in the article that beyond
1: Masood himself, the whole jihadi Muhammad has become almost like a family business, and multitudes of his family members are involved in various capacity organization. So, you know, if something were to happen to Masood, and I know there are a lot of conflicting reports, I believe that are talking about, you know, he's incapacitated or you know he's active still even regardless of him as the figurehead uh, based on, you know, your research and which you've seen about Jish, would they continue to operate at full strength and given their infrastructure and what they've built up and the involvement of not just family members, but many other um, in their leadership core and infrastructure, would that make a difference even if he was taken out or incapacitated in terms of how Jish operated as an organization?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I do believe that at this point, it doesn't matter if Masud Gazar lives or dies. I, I understand that he suffers from a kidney ailment and Pakistani officials claim that he's in hospital, but you know it's it's unclear. Nobody is you know, nobody's been able to confirm if that is true or if he's simply um, gone underground for some time so that he can he can resume his activities, you know, when the world's attention has shifted away, even if we were to accept the claim that he's not well and that he's probably not going to be active anymore and, you know, might end up dying. I don't think that that takes care of the Jaish problem from India's perspective, because you're right, it, you know, his, his brother, his brother-in-law, there are a number of people in the family that are in charge that are in leadership positions at the jaish and it's almost like a family business you know they are not going to give it up you know um they know that this is what has brought them so much influence so much money so much you know luxury i mean i i understand that you know they they live in in great comfort there's there's no way that this family would have been able to afford this this standard of living if it hadn't been for the fact that they were they were running a terrorist group that is backed by the Pakistani military i do think that unless you know there's some kind of crackdown where the Pakistani government decides to hold public trials for the various members, you know, of the group who were, you know, in in charge, who were at the helm of affairs. Unless something like that were to happen, the judge will continue to operate, and and we have to pretty much
1: deal with it. Reference the 2019 Obama attacks uh, in Jammu Kashmir. And post those attacks, I think what we saw from the response from India in terms of attacking at the Balakot uh, training camps within Pakistani territory, we saw a very different response um, than what had traditionally been a response by previous governments. How do you think that changes the equation at all, um, or at least the strategic calculus by Pakistan's military or even these groups in terms of how and when they attack, if at all?
0: Right. Well, I think that uh, the purpose of the Balakot strike, and I know that there's uh, there's some dispute over how many casualties that strike uh, was able to inflict, but regardless of how successful it was in killing terrorists, uh, the very fact that Indian jets entered Pakistani airspace to carry out the strike was you know was a huge paradigm shift you know Pakistani analysts also agree that that this was the main purpose of doing this of, of that of India carrying out the strike was to was to was to send Pakistan the signal that it could no longer it was no longer immune that simply by using terrorist groups that were connected to the army but weren't part of the army that that wasn't going to be enough to protect pakistani terrorist camps from direct retaliation and i think that that does change the equation because and i and i think and i think some of the success of the balakot strike airstrike actually came not from the strike itself but from the diplomacy that was done in the wake of the airstrike because the whole world the international community more or less kind of stood down and did not you know did not deliver any serious scolding to India for having carried out this attack because uh Indian diplomats had briefed, you know, had briefed all the the major powers in the world about exactly why this attack was necessary. And so for Pakistan to kind of to look at the world and contend with the fact that the world was, you know, was in agreement with India, you know, at least in tacit agreement, if not in overt agreement, that terrorist strikes of the kind that we saw in Pulwama, could be retaliated against in this kind of limited uh, fashion, as India did uh, through the airstrikes. I, I think that has definitely given Pakistan, the Pakistani military, some pause. And I suspect that they're having to rethink what kinds of terrorist attacks they can still get away with. Maybe they'll be working a lot harder to groom um, recruits from Kashmir itself, you know. Uh, Maybe maybe they'll try to, you know, stand up some new terrorist outfits that would be almost entirely based on Kashmir, you know, even though they receive logistical support from Pakistan. Uh, Because the Jaish's model is that the Jaish is based in Pakistan, and then it does some recruiting in Kashmir. But the Jaish has been sending, you know, its own Pakistani citizens across the border uh, through, you know, infiltration in order to carry out terrorist attacks. And, and I think the Pulwama attack uh, being carried out by a local Kashmiri uh, who had been recruited by the Jaish um, was itself kind of a, you know, a, a bit of a shift in strategy for them. Uh, so I think that we might see more of terrorist attacks that are orchestrated by Pakistan, but maybe, uh, you know, at, at a greater remove... Uh, you know, from themselves, maybe maybe that's what they will try to do uh, next. But uh, but I think that they they might also be trying hard to to sort of lay low for for some time. Whether that length of time is is you know is a few more months or 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 a year, uh, who knows? But I think that after the abrogation of Article three seventy i think there was so much attention focused on kashmir from the world that pakistan probably had to just hold back you know they 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 just didn't have the option of launching new terrorist attacks because they were being very closely watched uh and and i think you know, not that India has carte blanche uh, from the world to to carry out incursions into Pakistani airspace, but I think that you know, I think we are in a much much different climate today than we were back in December of two thousand one, when the jesh carried out its first major attack uh, on on that, and that's
1: that's the, the attack on the Indian Parliament. Good reference of Article 370 and with that, the further integration of General Kashmir into India. And I think there were a lot of uh, security measures that were taken post aggregation there. I'm assuming that that has also made just the climate more difficult for a lot of these terrorist groups to operate there. And even though, you know, in on the world stage, you know, India's come under, um, undergone a lot of criticism internationally for its handling of that situation. But I would imagine that from a Pakistani perspective, they would still consider that a strategic setback in terms of the abrogation, not just from the form the greater formality of Jammu Kashmir's integration into India and splitting into uh, two separate uh, um, union territories of Jammu Kashmir and Ladakh, but also with all the security and greater security implementation and the ability of the central government to really have a greater control over the... Um, What's happening in this in in the new union territories? That it would just be a much different, much more difficult atmosphere to operate in for terrorist groups and for the
0: infiltration
1: of groups from the Pakistani side of the border.
0: Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, I think that uh, the administrative changes that have come about as a result of the abrogation, as you said, the you know the bifurcation of of the state of the erstwhile state into you know, these two union territories. Um, uh, I, I think that India's security agencies are probably able to control this area a little bit better. I mean, I don't know the specifics, but, but you know, it stands to reason that with more um, uh, sort of direct control from Delhi, there's probably uh, a closer coordination between you know, between the police, which now is directly under the charge of uh, of the center, uh, there's direct there's better coordination between the police and intelligence agencies uh, and the army than there might have been in the past when, uh, you know, when the Jammu and Kashmir police, uh, you know, which, you know, which is. Sacrificed, you know, dozens of lives over the years to fighting terrorism. Back in the day, it, they they were under the charge of the Jammu and Kashmir government, uh, which was elected by the people of Jammu and Kashmir. And now you've got a different situation. So, uh, yeah, I mean, at, at the same time, you know, I think the I think there's a great need to. Uh, to to really calm tempers down, because clearly it is a fact that a lot of people in in Jammu and Kashmir are, you know, are are displeased. You know that they 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 uh, the, they aren't exactly you know exulting um, that India pulled off uh, you know this um, the abrogation. So so I think that. You know, while we might be able to argue that uh, India's security establishment now has a better uh, control over this region and is going to be able to deter terrorist activity, at the same time, I think you can't ignore the potential for Uh, You know, for a section of the population uh, being so frustrated with this change that they will now resort to acts of terrorism. So, you know, whereas we might do a better job, India might do a better job of of choking Pakistani sourced terrorism. uh, It might be challenged by more sort of local terrorism, uh, you know, which is. Which has always been a problem, but it might be a bigger problem to deal with.
1: Uh, th- I think that's a great point that you bring up, and I think it's going to be um, really critical that you know as we move forward and get out of the coronavirus pandemic, that India does follow through in terms of its promises about bringing greater development. Um, obviously, we're turning. Um, you know, local um, electoral control to the people in Jammu and Kashmir, which it has kind of laid a somewhat of a roadmap for, and that the, all the citizens in the state are able to better participate, or the two mm-hmm. union territories, sorry, are better able to participate and become equal citizens of India. So I think it's really going to be incumbent on the central government to really follow through on what it had promised with the application of 370 to, as you point out, cut off that local source of terrorism and really bring the people, of the young people, I think there's a lot of young people in Kashmir, bring them, you know, at the same level where people are progressing in the rest of India. You know, I think the future could be a great one, but only if there's adequate
0: political participation from, you know, all sections of of Kashmiri society, um, I think it might be a great idea to target Ladakh for some really rapid economic development uh, and, and, you know, make some kind of rules that, you know, that would encourage employers in Ladakh to hire from, you know, from their neighboring union territory. So that... Uh, their standard of living keeps going up. And if that happens, you know, I think you might see a large chunk of young people from Jammu and Kashmir going to Ladakh and then coming back home on the weekends and starting to influence their peers about the benefits of a... You know, having a, a peaceful society where, you know, where businesses thrive. I just wanted to wrap up our conversation with a couple more questions. Um,
1: in the short term, do you see any spike in terrorist activity with the pending um, impending withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan? I know we kind of look back in history, as you alluded to earlier, and saw the end of the Soviet withdrawal. From Afghanistan is kind of the start of really the terrorist movement in Kashmir, especially from the outside, and bringing Mujahideen fighters that were previously in Afghanistan into the Indian um, uh, area region. Do you see that happening again? Do you see a repeat of history there um, happening um, with the pending U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan?
0: Well, it's, it's certainly a, 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 a troubling development, you know, because it allows Pakistan uh, and Pakistan's ISI more influence uh, in in the region, and it's probably likely that they will leverage that influence in ways that threaten Kashmir as well. You know, I mean, I think I think the more direct threat would be to Afghanistan itself, but I think that Kashmir is not spared from that equation. So yeah, I mean one would one would hope that from kashmir's standpoint one would hope that pakistan's military would be so busy in afghanistan that and that it it would for the moment not pay much attention to kashmir but but maybe that's just wishful thinking uh on my part as as an overseas citizen of india which is which is what i am <laughs> I'm, I'm not I can't call myself an Indian citizen, but, but uh, yeah, certainly I, 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 I wish India well in this, uh, in, in all of its um, problems in Kashmir. I'm actually uh, optimistic about the future and that's because I think that a lot of young people in Pakistan, uh, do want to see things change, and you know I think there's going to be increasing pressure on Pakistanis uh, on on Pakistan's military establishment to cede more and more control to the Pakistani civilian government, uh, even in matters of foreign policy, and uh, and and I think it's it's because of a confluence uh, of various factors i think the economic aspirations of pakistan's um, young population and the pressures from the international community on pakistan uh, especially with respect to cutting off you know financial sources of of terrorism and and you know cutting off the uh, the use of Various financial means to support terrorism. Um, I think I think the result of that will be that there's going to be a, a growing voice. I think in the Pakistani military establishment to stop, you know, to to stop vexing over Kashmir and to to look inward and improve their internal security. Um, This is, you know, maybe it won't happen in five years, maybe it'll happen in 10. But I think that it is inevitable that the Pakistani people will ultimately be aware enough that they will no longer um, support the foreign policy that Pakistan has, um, has embraced for so long. Well, I'm glad we we're able to end
1: on a up to optimistic note. Um, we all, I think, hope for that future. Um, you know, before ending the podcast, I just actually wanted to see if there's anything that you're working on on any
0: upcoming projects that you wanted to let our listeners know about. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, as as you mentioned in your introduction, I, uh, I wrote a book about an espionage case uh, in the Washington, D.C. area called The Spy Who Couldn't Spell. Uh, it became a New York Times bestseller in the espionage category. So I hope that your listeners uh, can check it out. But there's also uh, a second book that's now coming out. Uh, it's going to be published by Audible, so it's going to be an audiobook, uh, and it's coming out uh, probably sometime this summer. It's called *The Set Gang*, and it's the true story of a pair of jewel thieves who were really adept at breaking into the homes of the super wealthy uh, and and making off. With cash and valuables, uh, and and these these two guys just led a fascinating life, uh, and so I've I've written you know their life story uh, in this book, which comes out um, later this summer. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org/donate. Thanks again for listening.